I must love college because I keep going back. I think you all might know by now I am not your prototypical PhD in history. Flunked out of college twice. Murray State University when I was a kid. Then had to go all the way back to Tallahassee Community College. To a short time to Florida State University. University that I loved. Wichita State University. A university I did not love. And then University of Minnesota, a university that did not love me. So, you know, it's kind of weird. The whole time I was there, I kept feeling like I was chasing something, you know, uh, chasing that college feeling. I, You know, I never joined in on a fraternity when I was a kid. I was too shy. I was too awkward. I always felt like I was ugly and uh, was really awkward when I was a kid, I had a hard time making close friends. I, I I think a lot of I've said this before. I didn't even have a girlfriend in high school or all the way up until I think my first girlfriend was really, I was 20 years old, 20, 21 years old by, by the time I met uh, my first girlfriend. So I was a late bloomer. I'm just awkward as hell. Shit, I guess maybe even now, 45 years old now. So it was a weird time for me. I always felt like I missed out on something. We... You know, so many people go to college and they have these moments of reflection and understanding about who they are. So many people identify with themselves about like their undergraduate institutions. Uh, We just saw some jackass give like $300 million to Harvard because God knows they need more money. And then Harvard went off and asked their own students for more money. Assholes. That's another story. But I love college movies and I wish... uh, I wish I had done it right. Uh, I got a lot of things I wish I had done right. College is definitely one of them. Judging by the state of the job market right now, I think a lot of us kind of wish we'd done something else. God knows I do. Anything else uh, at this point in time. But that's neither here nor there. We're here tonight. We're having some fun. It's 9.56 on a Monday night as I'm uh, re retaping the introduction. For those of you who don't know, I usually will record the podcast and then come back on a little bit later on after I've had a little time to reflect um, and then record the introductions and conclusions and send them off to our producer, Fletcher Powell, who will tell me that they are either good or need to be redone. So hopefully these will pass muster tonight. But I was talking to a good friend of mine, Lauren Lasab Shepard. She is uh, she's a historian in the United States. Actually, she, she focuses actually on American higher education from the 20th century to the present, especially on the topic of backlash against progressivism in the academy. And of course, if you've been watching anything in the news today, you know that is a hot topic. If you live in Florida, where we've got this guy's name is Ron, uh, you know, whatever his name is, I can't remember. I'm not going to say his name right now. You're going to hear him later on. You know that there is a huge attack on education in the United States. So her work could not be more relevant. In fact, she is a uh, she uh, is a teaches in the Department of Education and Human Development at the University of New Orleans, and she's got a new book coming from UNC Press called Resistance from the Right, Conservatives and the Campus Wars. Uh, I think it's coming out in August. So keep your eyes open for that. We're going to have her back for another podcast beforehand. So um, she is this absolutely delightful, amazing, and superbly intelligent human being that I had the opportunity to sit down with virtually today and talk to. And um, we talked about any number of films, but we really settled on old school today. Uh, The Will Ferrell film with Vince Vaughn and one of the... Brothers from the things. Owen Wilson, I think this is this one. Right. So Luke Wilson, Luke Wilson. This one's Luke Wilson. So 
I love old school. I've seen the movie a couple hundred times, I think, at this point in time. Sometimes when I go back and do these podcasts, I kind of have to go back and watch a movie for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. But I just happened to catch old school on TV the other day, and I caught it like 10 minutes in. So it kind of worked out in favor for myself. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite college films. Like a lot of college movies, it seems like there's a certain level of crassness to it. But maybe that just makes you love it all that much more. And of course, the whole idea about this is a little bit more ludicrous because you've got these guys going back to college that they don't actually belong to. And maybe that's why I love it, because that's kind of the way I've always felt myself. So anyway, listen, we had an awesome talk today. It was so much fun to sit back. And we talked to Lauren today. We had so much to talk about in terms not only of old school. We talked about the history of these movies going all the way back to, say, Animal House and some of the other ones that we talked about. Um, she's going to be coming back to do an Animal House podcast at some point in time. But we also talk a lot about the rise of some of these movements, especially what's going on in Florida right now, some very real thoughts on that. And also, her project actually involves a lot of oral histories. So she got to talk to us a little bit about the process of going through and creating materials that will actually go into the archive about collecting these oral histories and how those kind of work their way into her work as well. So we should have had a really illuminating conversation, not only about history and old school, but actually the the creation of histories themselves. So if you dig history, if you dig college, maybe you did college, maybe you did a little bit better than I did at the very least. If you dig old school, this is your podcast. So sit back and relax. Strap up, get ready, because we're going streaking. Old School is next on Historians of the Movies Podcast. Lauren LaSapp Shepard, what's going on? Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for pronouncing my middle name correctly. Nobody ever gets that, so it's always cool to hear it right. Okay, well, to be fair, I only get that right because you told me the last time I saw you in person, which was at the AHA this year, so it's not like I actually knew it coming in. It's like, I am one with the... I can barely read. That's the reason why I like, you know... <laughs> like I, I'm like the world's worst historian because like, I hate reading. That's my, my dirty secret. It doesn't follow any like phonetic rules. Like it's totally... Um, and it's also like, if you, if you look up the last name, it's not, uh, it doesn't fit French, like phonetic pronunciations or Spanish. It's, um, just weird. I've been on Facebook, like in ancestry and trying to find like, where are other people in the world who have LaSab as a last name? Um, and it's like the Basque region. Like it's like the, the Pyrenees. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Does it, does it mean anything? But I don't know if they pronounce it the way that I pronounce it. I don't think so. I think the closest thing that it would mean in French would be like La Sabre, like the saber, the knife. Oh, that's um, but there is no R in it. So I don't know. I have no idea. I should dedicate more time to learning this. It's the way that we pronounce it. We, you and I, we are the two, we are the two La Sabre speakers, La Sabre speakers. See, I even did that. La Sabre. The Sabre <laughs> I speakers. like Apple. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm so glad you're. We, we've been trying to put this together for a little while to uh, to do this movie to do old school, which I watched for the four thousandth time the other day. I was like, oh no, let me. So we were trying to figure out a movie, but first and foremost, let's get this right on the board, like right off the bat. Coke or Pepsi? Which way are you leaning? Coke all day. 
No question. All right. Yeah. See, we we are like we had one person choose Pepsi, and I cut the I cut the pot off like right away. It was Sarah Giorgini. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't. No, she, she made not me, Sarah. Oh yeah, and Sarah made me like watch a musical. She made me watch Guys and Dolls, which lasted I, ten I hours heard and that fifteen one. minutes. I didn't realize that Sarah. I didn't know she was a ballerina, but like it makes perfect sense now. Oh yeah, she's um she's what we refer to as a talented person. She's got like yeah. she can like do music and like dance and all that kind of stuff. And I what can't she do? Like drink Coca Cola, <laughs> you know. And I don't get it because she's from like New York, and like is New York a Pepsi town? I mean, I guess the Yankees are like have a thing with Pepsi. But uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't Either know. Way. I mean, Coke is Southern. Like so, where I grew up, like on the Mississippi coast, right. that's where Barks was founded. Like the Bark family is still here in Biloxi. Can we talk a little bit about like Barks being low key awesome? They don't advertise. When was the last time you saw a Barks advertisement? Like I've never seen a Barks commercial. I see no, not commercials, but I see Barks print advertisements all the time. But that's also because I live like in in the home territory. But like the Barks is a huge part of my family. Like growing up, crawfish boils, everything that we ever did that was outside, we had Barks. You know why? Because there's no caffeine in Barks. Is there no caffeine? There's no it's caffeine all in Barks. sugar. <laughs> is it? Like, I like think maybe, so. Maybe, maybe Barks is the one root beer that does have caffeine. I know most root beers do not have caffeine. I'm an IBC purist when it comes to root beer, but like I'm hard. I love IB, I love Barks. AW's good. I'm anti-mug. Yeah, I don't like mug either. Okay, quick Google search. Well, Pepsi. Tells that makes perfect sense. Go, quick Google search tells me that Diet Barks has no caffeine, but regular Barks has a little bit. Uh, twenty-two point oh. five milligrams. Oh, sorry, that's my my Just enough. text reader. <laughs> Just enough. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So we, we so we've got we're pro Coke, pro Barks. Yep. And pro scholarship. Speaking of which kind of scholarship, what do you what do you do? What do you say you do here? Like what's your, what's your history? What do you do? Cause you've got a book coming out soon. I do. I do. Yeah. So, um, historian of education specifically right now, I've been studying higher education since I have been out of my graduate program. Uh, the forthcoming book, which will be out with UNC press in August is called resistance from the right mm-hmm. conservatives in the campus wars in modern America. Um, and it's a story about the 60s campus wars, like the left and right back and forth. But what I'm arguing is that the students on the right, like cut their political teeth and use the lessons that they learned in the 60s as college students to take over Congress in the 90s. So it's people like Newt Whoa. Gingrich, people like <gasps> Bill Barr, um, Jeff Sessions, lots of really familiar names. David Duke makes a couple of cameos in the book. So there's, you know, familiar names. Pat Buchanan's in there. This is my tease. So <laughs> you can find that one. You can pre-order it soon. Hopefully I'll have that link for y'all. We'll have that in the show links when we're when we're done. Like I remember learning that Newt Gingrich had a PhD in history. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the flip? Yeah. Tulane. What is that about? Yeah. From Tulane. But he never got tenure. No, I don't think he taught for very long. So he so once he graduated, he went uh and taught somewhere in Georgia. I can probably look this up real quick online and figure out where he went. But anyway, he was teaching in Georgia. He was only there for like a year or two and then applied to be the department chair. Uh, and I think he was laughed out of that position. And then he was always like a political animal. Yeah. Right. I yeah. Mean, that was kind of always like his trajectory. Yeah. At least as a college. Isn't that, odd, though, that, that he ended up getting his PhD. Like a lot of these cats, I assume just go off to get law degrees Yeah, and go be attorneys and this, that, and the other. Now, when Gingrich was doing this, how many times had he been married in college? Was it 14, 15 times? 
don't know. I'm uh, listeners can't see this, worst. but I'm holding up "Burning Down the House." This is the most recent biography. Oh yeah, Nick yeah. Gingrich. Julian is a uh, he's a fan of the pod. So that's Julian Sellers' book. Oh yeah, he's a fan of the pod. He's been he's been on he 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 co-hosted HATM one night. Oh, that was back on on the Sunday night thing. Him and Cruz did Groundhog Day. Oh, all things. Yeah. Day. Cool, I definitely. And that was bananas. Definitely need to see They're that. They're like, Let, let's do a serious movie. I'm like, I got one for you. So, and I'll get Julian on, on the pod. Some Julian, if you're listening, I know you're <laughs> Vincent, but you know, if you really want some cred, EHATM podcast is your jam. You've been summoned. If he can like take time from getting off of like Crossfire or whatever else that he's like constantly. Every time I turn around, he's like on some other like newscast. But yeah, so there was a whole, anyway, there was a whole bunch of, bunch of most, I'm assuming mostly men were these mostly men, women. Oh, yeah. Like- yeah it, that were involved in young Americans for freedom. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there, there definitely were women and there were women even in leadership roles. Um, there were women as like state chairs in the sixties. There were founding women members of YAF, but they, I mean, I argue in the book, they don't play a big, huge role. Um, and so, and that's, that's not my interpretation. That's what they directly told me. So I interviewed like upwards of 50 different people who were activists themselves or who remembered activists. They're all like in their eighties and nineties now. And so, so this is part of my dissertation. So I started these interviews in 2018 um, and the book comes out this year, 2023, and some of them have passed. Um, so, I mean, there it's, it's an older crowd for sure, but uh, the people that were surviving and that were willing to talk to me told me those sorts of things. Like, yeah, we were there as far as like being women, the few women that there were, were all friends with each other because they knew each other every time they, you know, bumped into each other at conferences. So yes, to answer your question, mostly men, almost entirely white. There were literally three, the yeah, there were literally three black members of YAF in the years that I write about. Evangelical? Uh, yeah, lots of them, but also a really good Catholic population, like a really decent body of Catholics. Yeah. Really? What? Just come out of Louisiana? I'm assuming with the Catholics? No, 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 no. Coming, I mean, Northeastern at Tufts, there was a YAF group that its founding member was very Catholic. We talked again, this is 2018 and actually his interview, I think was 2019, but we talked about abortion and you know he told me his stance on that as a catholic and i mean i can just like vividly remember these conversations and part of me even though the the book's already finished part of me wants to go back and re-interview some of these people because um i haven't talked to them in like a post-trump world um i haven't talked to them post january 6th or you know post dodd's decision so i wonder i wonder if their takes on anything have changed i'm not sure well, this is what I find fascinating about your work is actually the oral history component of this is that you're actually going out there like creating these new histories that are going into, you know, it's like being able to like go in and, and you're actually creating, you know, con- contributing to the archive in the yeah. process of like creating your manuscript, which I think is just really, really, were these folks like really, were they, were they like all in on talking about like the past or did you kind of have to say kind of, you know, lobby folks to talk to them? I mean, what was, what was it like? So at first, um, and well, first I want to say that I loved doing the oral history. And as a doc student, I never thought that, and even as a master's student, I never imagined that I would do an oral history, but I took a Vietnam War class um, and we had an oral history assignment. So where my college was, there's two military bases nearby. There's an Air Force base um, and a CB base, a Navy base. And so there were surviving veterans and their children, their family. So we had to go interview them for like a, a group project with a local history organization. Um, and that was so powerful. 
I literally, one of the people that I interviewed was actually my stepmother's father, who was a veteran. Um, and I had never heard him talk about the war before. And I'd only met this man, you know, kind of wow. casually, like at holiday events. We, we never got that close to anything, but that was, that experience was just like jarring. So yeah, so all of that to say, I love the oral history aspect. Were they open to talking to me? Yes. However, at first, being a little bit naive about this, I reached out to the leadership, right? So I went straight to the top. I was trying to talk to, you know, the busiest, most active people who I could get to, right? Like I reached out to people like Carl Rove um, and he, his secretary very kindly sent me a note that says, here's a free copy of his autobiography. So it's basically like, I'm not going to talk to you, but here is the storyline that I've already, you know, narrated about my own past and this is what you can play off of. Uh, so, you know, there was some limitations to that, but what I really noticed and plenty of these people have written their own memoirs too. There really truly was like a company line that independent of each other, they were all telling me the same things in their interviews about like the shared experience or something that had happened with them in the past. And then I look like at the primary sources and these things don't align. But the, but it, as narrators, they were all saying it the same way. So like throughout the years that so there's alumni organizations, right? They stay in contact with each other. They still, like one of the uh, scenes where I did, scenes, one of the settings where I recorded um, some of these oh, no, interviews. We're going, full, we're going to go with full production on this. We're, like, <laughs> people don't know. we're just going to make a movie out of this. Yeah. So one of the places where I, I met some of my narrators was at CPAC um, in 2019, which was really, really um, an experience. Wow. Uh, but there was a YAF alumni reunion. And so I sat down with, you know, like 30 people at this luncheon. I, there's a picture somewhere of this. I don't have it. Somebody who was there took a picture. And so I know I'm on someone's cell phone camera. I'm probably on like YAF promotional <laughs> materials. Who knows? But um. Yeah, they were all, you know, they keep up with each other and they swap stories back and forth. And I think that continuous interaction has a way of like shaping their own memories. I'm, I'm not even saying that they were being deceitful when they're telling me these stories that, you know, don't line up with what I see in the archives. I think they, they really did believe this because they had just told themselves that for, you know, the last 60 years or so. And that's something as the, as the writer myself, I have to try to parse out, you know, how to justify those things that don't add up. Yeah, right. Like, so oral histories have this, like, they're this incredible, viable tool in the archive, but also, like, they are a product of memory, right? Mm -hmm. So, especially when you talk about things that happened 40, 50, 60 years ago, the stories we tell ourselves about the past inflect, you know, you know how we remember the past and, you know, and so forth. So, you've got, I think you were pointing out to it's like, Sometimes these things don't always line up. So there's probably a sussing out of uh -huh. reality. You know, am I saying the right thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sussing out reality or like redesigning reality. But I, it was very, very clear to me that all of the people that I interviewed, the men and the women, were very conscious of their legacy. Like they understood that I was a doc student doing my dissertation on them, right? Like they are the subject of my dissertation. I, I'm not sure that any of them imagined it would be a book. I don't know if I, even I imagined it would be a book, but they were very forthright. Like a lot of them sent me things. Even after we had our interviews, they would like continue to mail me things to um, the department that I was affiliated with at the time, right? They'd send in newspaper clippings or buttons or just like whatever stuff that they had. 
And so, I mean, they, they really wanted me to know like, Hey, look, I'm being helpful here. Like, I don't want you to write critically about me, or maybe they thought that I was a sympathetic interviewer. I'm not sure what they always made of me. Hopefully they thought I was neutral, but you never know how these things play out. So yeah, I mean, they were, they were super concerned about how they would be remembered. All right. Well, let's talk about like why the movie we chose to do this movie is like, <laughs> like, so like, we talk a little, a little bit like we were talking about when I first said, hey, let's do a movie together. We're trying to figure out like what to do and so forth. We kind of quickly narrowed down to one or two or three different films mm-hmm. um, to do. We chose old school. Like why old school? Like, well, I guess maybe the first question I've got for you is like, why are these college movies so like such a like there's like a there's like a, you know, there's your high school films and then there's college movies. Mm-hmm. And like, why is it that, you know, why are these college films so, so, I don't know, it seems like there's this benchmark moment in life, in people's lives that like college movies tend to, to tend to show. Why are these damn movies so popular? I guess is my question. Oh, like, yeah. Why do we like college movies so much? Well, wow. There's a million reasons for that. I think what you were getting at a second ago, like high school movies are really popular. College movies to me tend to be extremely bro-y. Like in old school is the best example of that versus in high school, there's, Super bro-y. there's a range of, you know, different interests that you could take. You know, there's movies about nerds. There's like super girly movies like, um, oh my gosh, why can I not think of Lindsay Lohan. Oh my gosh. What is the name of Oh, Mean Girls? Mean Girls. Thank you. There's oh all my that. God. You're not down with the Mean Girls? <laughs> Clearly I'm not. No, actually, from what I remember, I haven't seen that movie in so long, but for what I remember, I think that I liked it. Um, but coll- yeah, specifically college movies are very, very broy. So some of the other things that came up besides old school for us, we talked about Animal House. And so yes. plans to do that one do in the future. The yeah, yes. but we can we can totally No one else can have it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's reserved it's called um but the, yeah these are really not not just masculine but like young masculine like okay so the whole the whole backstory um and i guess spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen this movie but i i mean it came out 20 this years like ago 20 years old this yeah, year yeah it's yeah yeah it's go ah, watch the movie if you haven't seen this movie by now you need to stop and go see it or just go to hell is what i say <laughs> just this movie is awesome <laughs> I had not seen it since 2003 and I would have been what? Yeah. I would have been in like seventh or eighth grade. So this, but this movie would not have been on my radar, right? Like the no. picture, picture the audience. This is for like nine to 60 year old men, probably straight white men, because it's like the whole thing is like, it really, to me says a lot about male fantasies right like the whole even even the things that are supposedly like bad that are happening to the main characters like mitch uh his wife is cheating on him she's not just cheating on him with a man she's also cheating on him with women and she's watching like hardcore porn and she's having orgies at the house right so it's like the the humor is in like the overblown like fantastical I, I think it's just telling you what whoever that audience wants to see. And that's why it's funny. There's a sexuality component of college films that you can do that you can't do with high school movies for obvious yes. reasons. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. But even in this, even in this movie, the, one of the main characters is sleeping with a high school student. Right. And it's implied. Darcy, yeah. Mitch. Yeah. yeah. Our, our main, our, 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 our protagonist. Yes. And it's implied that she's underage. It never tells us that. She may be 18. I'm not sure. But, I mean, that's there. 
And and not, oh, yeah. not only is she in high school, she is his boss's daughter, right? So there's another like, I don't know, there's another gender and just like power dynamic to that. Like, sh- like he's the boss, he's the employee, but he's kind of getting at his manager, like stealing something from him because he's with his daughter. Oh, yeah. So all that's there. That's uh, and maybe that's something to like. I don't know. That didn't appeal to me <laughs> watching it this time, but. No, I think you're right. I think that there's this this sense of like a male fantasy, at least yeah. in old school, right? Where it's like even when the bad things are happening, oh no, mm-hmm. what's the first thing that happens? This guy gets, you know, this guy gets laid. Like the yes. very first thing that happens yeah. is like, and they're having this massive party. And in fact, all the guys decide that their friend's crisis is the best thing that ever happened to them as well. Yeah, because they're gonna start off. They're gonna start a fraternity. Yes, and other. I'm just thinking of other examples of that, like whenever um, Will Ferrell's character and his wife, they're in marriage counseling and the counselor's encouraging them, you know, be very open. And he said, okay, well, uh, we were at the restaurant the other night and this waitress came by and I was just trying to think about like what her underwear looks like. Um, So again, that's like the humor in this is that he's really just exposing like maybe, I don't know, secret men's kinks or interests, but there is a sexuality to it, like for sure. They're in the trust tree. There's a another like similar to the trust tree. There's like this the guy code, right? So the scene where what is what is uh, I can't think of her name. Not Michelle. Nicole. Nicole has a boyfriend. Um, oh yeah. And Mitch catches the boyfriend like hooking up with one of the catering staff, and he gets caught. And the boyfriend's like look, man, this is bro code. Like you don't get to tell on me. And Mitch honors it. Like there's even a scene where he is. A of course chance. he has to honor. He is a bro. You have to honor the bro then, code. There's a handshake. <laughs> but it's so funny. The juxtaposition of like, okay, yes, this is bro code, but this is someone that Mitch hates. This is someone that Mitch really yeah. doesn't like. And that guy doesn't like but him you back. Don't break the code. Yes, but he does eventually. So this is what was like, just stood out to me. So he doesn't break the bro code, even when he has a clear chance to, right? He's at, there's a scene following that where he and Nicole are at a restaurant and he has a chance to tell her and you can see him contemplating it and he goes like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to wish her the best of luck. But then he does violate it. He does tell her the truth, but he only tells her the truth when he finds out that that guy threw him under the bus. So he's like, okay, well, in, in this instance, I'll, I'll violate our code because you broke it. Yeah, once the, once the code is broken, I believe, and I, I hope that the other bros out there will not punish me for revealing secrets of the bro code, which is that once the code is broken, then you may in turn continue on with the breaking of the code. Like once that 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 bond is done, he, you know, you're you're allowed to. That's that's bro code from Jason Herb, uh, established bro, established 1977. So that's when my <laughs> my bro was established. So um, I'm wondering a little bit. You know, this movie comes along in 2003. Follows a long line of other college movies, like where this kind of fits in. Like, are you seeing what is this movie telling us anything about college or, at all in 2003? Is there any kind of pushback about like where college is or what how people are looking at college, say in the early 2000s versus say, you know, we talked a little bit about Animal House early on. Or, or mm-hmm. Are we looking at colleges differently as a society in the early 2000s? Maybe I can tell you like today, specifically the research Mm -hmm. on like Greek life or on, on white Greek life. A lot of studies talk about this really interesting. I I like, I think this is super fascinating. This interesting dynamic of men's and women's fraternities, sororities, really 
underscore heteronormative relationships. However, there's a caveat to that. Those relationships are don't come around by like dating and having serious relationships and like eventually moving into marriage in your young 20s now the way that they have in the past. Instead, hookup culture has replaced that, right? So it's assumed that girls and boys will hook up with each other, but they probably won't have relationships. Instead, their true relationships are with their friends in their fraternity or sorority. So um, like if you just picture what's going on in a typical sorority house one night, and I can use my own examples. So speaking as an alumnus of a sorority, uh, well, technically if I'm you as a fraternity, we could talk about that in a second. But um, on a typical night in the house, you might have a group of girls sitting together, like watching a TV show. And we're all snuggling with each other on the couch in blankets in pajamas, or we're like, I don't know, painting each other's nails or that sounds really stupid. It sounds really hokey, but like for 17 year old girls, or you're just talking about 17, 18, 19, 20 year old girls, women, you're talking about these things, these intimate things that you would previously have done maybe with your romantic partner. That relationship has just completely transformed. You do that with your friends. Now your romantic partner is the person that you will you know, respond to a late night text with, go meet at a bar, go hook up with whatever. But then you come back home to the house and then you're with your real solid relationships. And those relationships matter more than whatever sexual relationship that you have outside of the house. So that's where the relationship, yeah, that's what the literature says now. And I'm that I'm specifically thinking of, uh, there's a, another UNC book, the benefit of friends. I cannot think of the author. I could I could Google it real quick. But that's a lot of that argument comes from Jana Matthews. That's who is the author of that. So credit to her. Um, but we actually don't really see that in old school, I don't think. Because in old school, yeah, the fraternity brothers are close, but there's much more focus on like hazing or at least, you know, from what we see in the movie. 20 years ago, such that it's even like an accurate depiction of what would have been happening in, in fraternities in 2003, but it's more focused on like prankishness. Yeah. Hazing, just doing stupid shit and not necessarily like building these strong, like brotherly vibes. And then there's no sororities in it either. The only women's perspective. No, there's not. The only women's perspective you ever get. And this is why this is such a bro-y movie because there's no way that a woman was consulted for this scene. The only like major time that you see women in the movie, um, the wives are having like a girl's night and they call over like a sex expert (laughs) um, to show them how to give blowjobs, right? So they're all practicing on different vegetables. And it's just like, it's so ridiculous. Like, again, that's where the humor comes in. Uh, but this is not something that women do, right? Unless, maybe unless you're at like a bachelorette party and and you know you're being stupid. But I mean, it's cast or it's it's shown in the in the movie as like a serious thing. Like this is what women are doing. They're having a girls' night. They're hiring a sex expert to teach them how to give BJ's. There's a real dichotomy here going on, right? Like we're like women are straight or very straight and narrow. In fact, have to be taught how to have fun, i.e., the blowjob course, yeah. right? Whereas the guys are just naturally fun, just want to go and be it. even the business guys like Vince Vaughn's, you know, you know, character, you know, he's owns all these speaker cities or whatever, which are by, you know, which are bankrupt by now. I, I want to see like old school, like now what's happened to all of these guys since then, because speaker, speaker city's gone. Was that a real business? 
No, it's you know, it's it's like Circus City, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That, you know, at that point, so okay. but it's like, but you, you know, by by now, like a radio shack, like City, like Amazon, yeah, yeah, it's it's all gone, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you're absolutely right there. Like, so the the women, the only women we see are either the adult women who are the wives, who are the adults, for lack of a better word, and of course, then we see we see some we see some of the younger women. Like in the scene with Blue when Blue dies, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is another one of those classic. We were talking about this off air before before you jumped on. One of these classic hallmarks, the gratuitous nudity that you can do that these college movies have galore. It seems to be a hallmark of these college films, right? Where it's 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 gratuitous women nudity of women, but not of men. Like we yeah. we, we do see Will Ferrell's butt. So, ladies, he does something. go streaking, yeah, yeah, and and there's also the scene. It's like the fraternity initiation thing. Like it's it's another hazing ritual where they're standing on the ledge of a building. They all have cinder blocks tied to their you know members, and it's a it's a trust building exercise, right? Like when I say go, you're gonna drop the cinder block, and you just have to trust that we've given you enough rope, um, but nothing bad will happen. And of course, that isn't the situation, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and and to your point, right, that you said there's two different dynamics going on here. Not only are the women seen as like really straight laced and they don't naturally know how to have fun. There is a real struggle with the male characters to be in relationships with women because it's not fun. Right. So that's the whole reason that. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Will Ferrell is getting a divorce. He didn't even want the divorce. Right. It's his wife who was like, you're not. We rushed into this. You are not ready to be married. But he isn't in his own mind, like, right. He's like demonstrating that he still wants to be, uh, what is it? Frank the tank. Right. And that's a, yeah. a whole thing where she, she won't allow him to be Frank the tank and he wants to be Frank the tank, but he also wants to be married. Um, and they don't, they don't play the women as understanding, you know, that people are dynamic, right. It's like, you can't be Frank the tank anymore because you're married. Yeah, you know, and Vince Vaughn is absolutely miserable in his own marriage. Mm-hmm. He's begging, don't do he's it, begging for not to get married. To start, <laughs> yeah, you know, of course he follows this up with like wedding crashers, which is great. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's there's <laughs> there's all of that in line. Let me ask you, actually, going back to the idea of the fraternity sorority stuff, because when I was, I I never got to pledge fraternities. I was too. I was actually really shy, actually, as a as an 18, 19 year old guy. And it was like I never felt like I fit in. So I was always really too too shy to like go to pledge night or go like meet. Like I was terrified to like join a fraternity. I was like, I'm a nerd, no one's going to like me kind of a thing. And I promptly fl- flunked out of college. So that helped me not be old enough or not do the fraternity thing. And then by the time I went back to college, I was like 35. I was like, what's up, young people? Um, <laughs> Dad's so I never got to do that. Yeah, you guys want me to buy some beers, young fellows? Uh, it's that never quite worked out for me. Do fraternities and sororities do they still provide a benefit? Is there a benefit for them being on campuses to now? I, I know, obviously, we think a lot. At least the, what I've read a lot is about obviously like sexual assault mm-hmm. and things like that happening on fraternity sorority rows and things like that. Is, is there an argument to, to be made in say twenty twenty three for the continued placement of fraternities and sororities? On college campuses, is, is there a net positive, a net negative? Like, how do we think about these, like these establishments yeah. in, in our in our time now? Yeah, well, I, th- I think you're exactly right. I mean, there's a loud calls to abolish specifically white fraternities. Um, I don't think the the rules are, or I don't think anyone's yelling quite so loud to abolish black fraternities. Um, and then in sororities, I think that that's that's considered 
a little less controversial, but it's, yeah, specifically it's the white fraternities for things like hazing, underage drinking, and the fact that they're not inclusive, right? I mean, that's like the most obvious thing. They didn't include me. <laughs> well, so and as you were saying that, I was, th- I didn't, I didn't Jason come out with this, friends. but it's therapy time. No, go ahead. No, as you were saying this, I was thinking they're probably that experience that you had is probably extremely common. Um, and also I think that many fraternities would still have welcomed you even say as like a fourth year student, right. That's still, at least that was my experience when I was an undergrad, like 07 to 11. And that's probably specific to the campus I was in. Right. So in the South, but yeah, I mean, I worked for a long time in Title IX and then after that in student conduct. And I am extremely critical personally of fraternities. Are there benefits? Like I come out of the Greek system myself. Yes, you will potentially have lifelong connections, not just social connections, professional connections. And if that's important to you, that's there. But there's other ways to get that too, right? You can be friends with, I'm closer to, and for years after college, like after undergrad immediately, I remained close to uh, the women who lived on my dormitory floor, like in my residence hall, um, even though we were all members of different sororities. We were all the same age, same entering pledge class. So we had that in common, right? So you can build those relationships in other ways. You don't have to join a secret society. Um, you don't have to learn secret handshakes and all of that. I mean, that's you know, these things have long histories. And so there's that appeal to them, especially like in New England and in the South, uh, their entire fraternities, like Kappa Alpha, like specifically was, was created as a fraternal order to glorify the old South, right? In the Confederacy. So it's hard for me to come up with with the answers to say, yes, we should absolutely keep white fraternities, um, keep these institutions as they remain today. I just, I'm not sure that. No, there's, that. you know, I'm thinking right now actually of another film that comes out right about the same time called Social Network, mm-hmm. which there's yeah. a whole other fraternity-esque society there that plays a huge role in in, in the film as well, right? Uh, I forget I forget the, the name of the, the, these clubs, right? But they're... Uh, the, you know, Zuckerberg's trying to get into them and so forth. Uh, these was it like a that, um, the whole idea behind them? Was it like an eating club, like a supper club? I don't remember. I haven't seen that movie since it was in theaters. It's like a fraternity. Okay. You know, it, it's uh, I forget the, uh, I forget the name of it. Uh, I, I forget the this common terminology. Someone's gonna be like sort of history thing, movie thing. Jason can't remember it. I'm like I can't actually. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean the whole idea is it's based on exclusivity, yeah. right? You join. Alpha Tau Omega or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever the uh, I'm just throwing letters out there at this point in time. Historians at the movies. We have a sort of fraternity here, right? I mean, hashtag Twitter tor- Twitter historians is like, I mean, that's that's where that's how I know you. That's how I've met. Is that so, right? Yeah, that's how I've met yeah. so many people like professionally that I, I mean, as when I was doing my and still in the middle of my program, I didn't travel to conferences. I didn't have the money to do that. Right. I've just now started to go to conferences regularly since COVID restrictions have lifted um, on my own dime. Right. I still don't even have research funding for that. So to to know people in my field, that's happened because of Twitter. To be fair, it's not a surprise that so many history conferences or academic conferences end up back in New Orleans because there's that whole party (laughs) aspect of that. Right. There's like, oh, my, look, it's another it's another conference in Louisiana. Like, really, are we do we all love the Delta that much? 
You know, so it's like, you know, we, we talk about like the idea of fraternities and sororities and parties and things like that. And then the first thing that happens is we all grow up and we join professional organizations. And then we all have our conferences in New York and Chicago and San Francisco and New Orleans. Well, so so New Orleans, though, is cheap. like the South generally is more affordable to get to. Right. Um, New Orleans True. has a major airport. So there's there's those sorts of things. But now. Um, we saw this with uh, USIH, the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. I think I hope I'm not ascribing this to their own conference, but anyway, there were there were people from California specifically who couldn't come because California had, you know, policies in in place that said we're not going to reimburse you for travel to red states or to states where um, abortion has been restricted. Uh, and it's it's like, OK, wow. I, I think I understand the intention or perhaps the well-meaning signifiers behind those policies. But you're really just hurting scholars all around. Right. Not just the scholars in California who can't travel to the South, but like Southern institutions themselves, who th- most of the faculty on college campuses are not going to agree with our state legislators about their positions on abortion. Right. We had nothing to do with that. So I don't know. I think that policy is really misguided. So I'm not sure in the next few years if we'll see a lot of conferences in New Orleans or Memphis or Atlanta or Houston or Florida. Florida. No, no, no. Well, should we get Can into we talk it? About <laughs> Let's, Let's do it. Like, there we okay, are. Because I was gonna. There's our intro. All right. Okay. Um, Florida. <laughs> all right. Florida. What the fuck? Um, is is the is the title of this segment of the show? In fact, that should just be a new title. Ever the Florida? What the f? Uh, what the Florida is what we'll what call this segment from here on I love out. It. What's going on in Florida? I, it's it's you know you've studied these movements on college campuses, mm-hmm. um, and I assume in some ways some of these movements were internal. Now we're seeing these external forces trying to actively shift mm-hmm. uh, the nature of some of these college campuses. Can you can you shed a little light on like what the hell is going on here in Florida and how to understand it? Yeah. Um, so, well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't always internal. One of my arguments in the book, at least, is that the students were just like the foot soldiers on the campus for the larger like post-war conservative movement who had already had their designs on like tearing the campus apart from within, right? At least the the liberal humanities um, as we would recognize them in the 60s and, and really even today. So, uh, but yeah, those student foot soldiers grew up um, and Ron DeSantis wasn't one of them, right? He's very young. He's, he was definitely, you know, not of... He's younger than me. Yeah, he's not of Newt Gingrich's cohort. And he went to Harvard too, right? No. I believe Harvard and Yale yeah. is like, it's DeSantis' pedigree. I mean, he's he's his new book says he's born in Jacksonville, but ideologically the child of Ohioans and Pennsylvanians. Like really, okay. I, like <laughs> the Ohioans and Pennsylvanians who settled in Tampa. I was like, yes, Ron, just go ahead and scratch off as many of those, you know... Yeah you know, swing state voters as you possibly can on the I-4 corridor. He's, he's pandering, yes. Go ahead and say it. Absolutely. All. And oh my also, what? also, he didn't write that book, right? None of them write their books. They all have ghostwriters. Um, I, rem- oh, yeah. I remember, sorry, I'm about to get extremely off topic. Well, not really that off topic. We're still Go talking about it. it, right? But like, so- This is called What the Florida. Go for it. <laughs> I grew up like extremely Catholic. Um, and so in some ways, my- uh, Catholicism and formed my own conservatism, right? As a young person. Um, and my dad, who is probably my biggest political influence growing up, wouldn't call himself a libertarian. I'm calling him a libertarian, but he would just say, I'm a conservative, right? So I always grew up kind of like very familiar with um, ideas and such on the right. And I can remember watching, I was probably, I was in undergrad, I was at my dad's 
house, we were watching like Bill O'Reilly or one of the nighttime Fox news hosts. Um, and he was talking about his book and my dad's like, this is just crazy. These guys keep turning out books. You know, he just came out with one last year. And then that's when I started like reading about all of this. And I was like, Oh, they're not writing their own books. They have ghostwriters, but you know, there is definitely a conservative audience that watches, um, these people that, you know, thinks that they're brilliant and just heroes and really does believe that about them, right? Like that they're this intelligent that they can commit all their time to writing books and being on TV and, you know, whatever, like radio advocacy stuff that they do as well. So anyways, back to Florida. So the, the whole new college thing, I mean, I, I don't, exactly know what to make of DeSantis for a long time. I thought like, oh yeah, clearly he's going to be Donald Trump's challenger. But I think what I'm reading now is that from a couple of different places is that he's probably not. Um, He hasn't really come out and positioned himself strongly to challenge Trump in 2024. And Trump's already like really launching a hard opposition to prevent that from happening anyway. But um, there's no reason we wouldn't see like a 2028 DeSantis versus Gavin Newsom right? Like, a, you know, governors from completely opposite ends of the political spectrum just facing off. Um, so maybe that's on the horizon. I have no idea. But I know that all the stuff that DeSantis is doing is really like outflanking Trump in terms of like, you know, look how MAGA I can be. Look how hard I can own the left. But this is, I'm sorry, listeners, I'm going to apologize in advance. This will probably not be something that you like hearing me say. I am not a Trump fan. Uh, by any measure, but I will say when it came to educational policy, at least in higher ed, right? Like he obviously he had like DeVos operating things in the K-12 sphere, but in higher ed, he really didn't do much of like what we're seeing um, with the educational gag orders right now um, in 2021, 22 and 23. I, the only thing that comes to mind and someone can, can please send me a nasty tweet or a nasty email telling me I'm wrong. The only thing that comes to mind, he tweeted in like 2019, about, you know, some musing, like, maybe we should revoke funding for campus who campuses who don't let, you know, all speakers come to speak. And obviously, right, he's like trying, and he even issued an executive order at some point protecting free speech on campus. But that was really the extent, right? He wasn't calling for banning books. He wasn't doing any of some of the other stuff that we see today. That, so that stuff's even to the right of him. Um, as far as New College specifically goes, I mean, this is like taken straight out of some, you know, 20th century authoritarian playbook, right? Like I'm going to purge the board of trustees. I'm going to put my loyalist in. Uh, We haven't seen anyone sign a loyalty oath or call for that yet. So that's probably coming. That's probably, you know, somewhere down the pipeline. But yeah, he put his loyalist in, including Chris Rufo, who some listeners may recognize as the guy that literally like created the anti-CRT hysteria, right? Like he's got some tweet where he basically comes out and says like, let's take everything we don't like and call it CRT. And eventually people will come to believe that CRT is, you know, the worst thing ever, right? It's this boogeyman that they can hang their hat on. So yeah, so Chris Rufo is one of the new trustees. I know a lot of faculty quit. uh, And that's, that's kind of like the, the spirit of this is like, let's just dismantle. And then and we're talking about new colleges is, is not like some sympathetic, like religious school, right? It's a small liberal arts college. So this is, this is definitely like the exact type of target that they want. And I think Rufo's even said, 
Um, and either the Atlantic, the New York Times, I forget who he was speaking to, but he said, like, this is the playbook. Like, this is the example. Watch what we do here. Um, and it's going to be successful. And you're going to see us doing this over the rest of the country. So he doesn't have jurisdiction over the rest of the country, only in Florida, I guess. Not yet. No. Right? But Rufo is clearly thinking he can ride the DeSantis coat, coat heels to yeah, and he has, Department of Education or whatever. Yeah, like, and there's other presidential hopefuls who are watching this and saying, okay, well, hold my beer, right? Like, let me try to do the same thing in Ohio or- Hold my non-Bud Light beer. Yes. Right, yes. <laughs> hold my non-Anheuser-Busch product. I, okay. So there's some, another UNC author. I'm just like plugging all the UNC people today, but there's uh, another recent UNC book about cores, like boycotts against cores led by black and brown people, I guess throughout the sixties and seventies. I don't know. I need to pull the book out and refresh my memory. But anyway, Coors has long been like a donor to the right. Like he's a major, major philanthropist in right-wing causes. Um, he appears in my book just a little bit, but anyways, it was just interesting to hear so many people say like, I'm not drinking Bud anymore. I'm going to be drinking Coors. And it just seems to be like they probably would have been drinking Coors all along. And then there's this whole other wave of people saying like, well, look how much Coors has done to promote like queer inclusion. So I don't know. It's a, the internet is a mess. Yeah. A lot of this seems to be such, such posturing. And I don't know that, and I, and I'm not the scholar to talk about this kind of stuff, but this idea of identity politics politics getting all the way down to, to the things that we eat and drink and so forth. I, I've always kind of tried to stay away from it, assuming that everyone is probably always horrible. Well, we are um, all political. <laughs> um, Brewing a Boycott by Allison Brantley is the name of the, the UNC book I was referencing. I wonder, yeah, and you know, the other thing with, with Florida, I was also thinking about Ben Sass getting appointed as the president of the University of Florida, right? Which is where I think DeSantis had tried to keep that on the on the down low as much as pos- as much as he possibly could as well. So this, you know, this, this real kind of takeover. And of course, you know, I've got friends of mine who teach secondary here in Florida. They cannot fill the jobs, and I think this is a nationwide thing because we don't want to pay our teachers. But and they don't want to be shot. I mean, there that's another thing too. They don't want to be shot, right? Well, thank you. Yeah, teachers. You know, I taught for three years here in Florida, two years at uh, in a public school, and then one year at a, at a private school. You know, thinking about like what's going to happen when people jump into our school with a with an AR fifteen or whatever. How do I get in front of them between them and my kids or whatever? Mm-hmm. And there's no shortage of. Uh, of danger, it feels yeah. like to these folks, and and I, I know that a lot of teachers feel like they've been completely left behind. And then, of course, you get this this rhetoric of let's give teachers mm-hmm. guns. We don't trust let's them to time, pick out our books. books. Yes, but let's let's arm them. Um, no, I had I yeah. had the, the same thoughts um, myself. Right after I, I talked about this the other day on my um, on my Instagram, but I also taught K twelve. Like I had. Oh, <laughs> side note, we wanted to talk about AP. Maybe we can do the AP conversation yes. on the next podcast because I, I still have to read the AP book. Um, but anyway, I was when I was teaching high school. AP is bad. It's a conversation. <laughs> this was right after uh, Parkland, and yeah, I remember thinking. So my classroom had like floor to ceiling windows, and one of the other history faculty was like, "Look, just take." you know, take your stapler, take some sharp object and just hit that window right here in this corner and it'll knock the whole thing out and y'all can run out. And that, uh, that like, I don't, I don't even understand how to process that. Right. Like it's just, why is that part of the job description? Yeah. And, and so to your point about there being teacher shortages, it's the solution that lawmakers have come up with is let's just 
make it so that anybody we want can be a teacher, right? You don't have to have a college degree anymore. You don't have to pass like the praxis or whatever licensing exam is required in your state. Um, because the whole idea is we want to get our loyalists. We want to get our voters, people we like teaching kids, right? They're so worried about indoctrination, but that's actually the thing that they do want to do. So it's projection. I'll tell you one of the things this will get me probably eaten alive at some point in time once I launch my own political career, which is that when I was teaching high school, I never once required my students to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. Uh, You know, you're supposed to. I would just tell my kids like, hey, there's a flag. You guys want to do it? Have at it. But I can't. Yeah. I ask you to say the pledge to some country, some people. You, you're, you're a child. Yeah. The idea of a pledge of allegiance, the same, the single words, ring of indoctrination. To yeah, me. feels a little I was nationalist. Felt really conflicted about that. Yeah. A, a schmidge. It felt like yeah, something you'd see in North Korea. <laughs> no, I grew, I grew up saying the pledge, um, and I remember in our music class. So this is a Mississippi public elementary school. Uh, on Jeff Davis Elementary, of all places, that was the name of it. Or Jeff right. Davis Elementary was his previous name. Jeff Davis Avenue is where it was located whenever I was a student there. Anyway, um, we grew up, we said the pledge in our music rotations. We sang like all of the patriotic songs. And then when I started teaching just a couple of districts away, we didn't we didn't say the pledge. It didn't come on the intercom in the morning, but we did have channel one. And so maybe that replaced you know, that was the segment of the morning announcements where it would have gone and they took it away thinking like, this is not a big deal. But we did have, I got my hand slapped one time because we were required by state law. Like when the auditors came in and did the head count, like how many kids are in seats, they wanted to see the in God we trust like poster hanging. It was a framed picture actually. They wanted to see it hanging on the wall. And I did have mine hanging on the wall, but when the door was open, um, it was behind the door and you couldn't see it. So they didn't like that. And and honestly, that wasn't even intentional. I just, I was hanging it up and it was by the door. And when the door was closed, you could see it. But yeah, I mean, all that stuff is there. I want to talk about decorations in old school, specifically some of the stuff we were talking about before <laughs> we got on. You were mentioning there were, I'm like a king of Segway. I am not, but we're going to go with it anyway. We were talking a little bit earlier about beards and mm-hmm. this whole other thing. And we were talking that you were, you had said in old school, there are all these throwbacks yes. to these seventies era films. And I'm yes. guessing it's maybe because the producers are making who are making this film kind of grew up in that. What do you, what do you see when you look at old school? Like what's this telling us? I'll tell you exactly what I see, but now I wanted to know who are the directors and who are the writers? I should have looked that up before we even started this. Like, I imagine Will Ferrell had a, a big role to play in this, or at least some of the people that he's used to work with, because this was such like a stereotypical Will Ferrell movie. Oh, very much. Todd Phillips. Well, this was the movie, I think, yeah, Todd Phillips is directing this, who he actually most recently did the Joker films. Mm. But those have been kind of a step away from maybe his stuff, because he's done like um, The Hangover. Yeah. And those films. But Will Ferrell kind of goes from here to like the Anchorman stuff. This kind of like sets Farrell up as like the next big guy after his time on SNL. Oh, was this, yeah. Was this like his breakout movie? I don't think I realized. I don't think I put the timeline. Yeah. This was really his thing where he goes from here to Anchorman and then to like Ricky Bobby (laughs) and, you know, any number of things, you know, and he's got, you know, kind of this up and down career from, from here and out. But we were talking earlier, just like the visuals, you know, you had said Sean, Sean William Scott's got like the goatee (laughs) and the mullet Uh in this movie, you know, when you see this movie, what, what what are you seeing? Is is there are we seeing any like any demonstration of like masculinity in two thousand 
three or is this just complete half? Oh no. Oh my God. The whole, that's what the whole movie is. Um, no, I can tell you some or a lack of masculinity. One aesthetic that they get really, really right. Um, is the Dean's office, right? Really the whole college campus itself. Like it, it really has this like classic new England, um, kind of vibe to it, right? There's a quad, there's Gothic looking buildings, but then when you get into the Dean's office, Number one, okay, the dean himself, before we get to his office, he is in every scene, he's wearing his like pressed khakis. He has on a sport coat. Underneath that is a sweater vest. Underneath that is a tie. Underneath that is his button down, right? And his hair is like combed on the side. And he's got these big like goofy glasses, very 70s retro glasses at that. So, and he's wearing like Oxford shoes. So just his whole persona, I think they nailed. But then his office. The office is enormous. It's mahogany everywhere, right? Like wood floors, these huge, gorgeous wood bookshelves. Um, his desk, he has this like accountant green lamp sitting on it. The uh, All the seating in his office is that same green, but it's like tuft leather furniture. I mean, it looks like such a dean's office, like a stereotypical dean's office. Um, I think there's even his golf clubs. Like if you pay close attention to the room, you can see his clubs kind of poking out. So they did that really well. And the frat house itself is also done pretty well. I love the frat house. It's The frat house is too much fun. The, the dean's office, I wonder, because I always hear about all these associate deans. I haven't spent enough time in the dean's offices, like how big that's supposed to be or not. Well, in a, in a traditional New England like campus, that's that's what it would look like. It's probably, and also maybe in Southern campuses too. You wouldn't see that at like where I work at the University of New Orleans, which is a city campus that was built in the 1950s and is completely all concrete. Uh, technically, we do have a quad, but it does lend itself to that like New England elite campus sort of vibe. Is University of New Orleans, is it a residential campus? Do you have dorms on there at all or mm-hmm. is it mostly a commuter school? It is mostly a commuter school because that's what the students do, but there are residence halls um, and lots of them. And we also have like family residence halls, probably more mm. than most campuses do. You know, for non-traditional students, we have a lot of international students who come with their families um, and they stay in the residence halls. I've noticed a definite feeling, a, 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 a different feeling between campuses that have, you know, that are predominantly residential versus, you know, your commuter schools. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's the, there's definitely a different vibe. It seems like be a much more like, again, we're talking about this big idea of inclusive versus exclusiveness. When you've got residence halls and you got like your traditional, like when I went to school when I was a kid at Murray State University, it's mostly kids were living in dorms and there's this real feel of being on campus as the hub. And then you get away from like even like a school like Minnesota where I was at, which is a much larger school where I did where I did my graduate work. Mostly the campus is a commuter school. It just you still had a weird differential, like people just the campus wasn't the the center of life, I guess is the way I was putting it. Yeah. Um it, they, they definitely have they definitely feel different. Yeah, a lot of that too. I mean, that's kind of the history of higher ed. Like it depends on when the campus was built. So I, um, in just now, I looked at where uh, Old School was filmed and it was filmed on on parts of it were filmed at Harvard, right? So I, <laughs> that's obviously why they nailed that sort of aesthetic. The aesthetic. Yeah, because it was literally at Harvard. But no, I mean, if you were, you know, if you go to an institution that was built in the 1600s as Harvard was, um, or, you know, even a- any of the colonial institutions that are all like the kind of elite schools in New England, like they have a certain vibe. 
Then when you start moving out Midwest, a lot of those were land grant institutions. They were built in the middle of the Civil War and a couple of years after, even late into the 1890s, a lot of HBCUs were were constructed then. Um, And then California, like a lot of the California schools weren't built until the 20th century, right? The the beginnings of the 20th century. Stanford is coming to mind. I don't know when, Stanford might be 1890s. Let me see. Yeah, Stanford's a fairly young university, especially when Mm -hmm. you consider its pedigree, right? I mean, because it's kind of, you know, it's... You know, it's Ivy-esque, only it's nowhere near as old as the Ivies. Yeah. Okay. 1885. Yeah. And then, okay, so even those, a lot of the existing campuses in the Depression and, you know, into World War II were major beneficiaries of um, New Deal funds, right? So there are, even after World War One, there was this huge building spree of stadiums, right? Lots of universities have literally memorial stadiums. They were built in memory of the veterans of World War One, uh, because oh, football was huge. Yes. Oh my gosh. College going literally becomes popular um, in large part to uh, college athletics, right? And football specifically. Wow. I never thought about things like the Rose Bowl and things like that. All these old stadiums, the blah, blah, memorial as being in uh, a remembrance place but that makes so much sense now yeah. right and of course you've got post-war money coming in and you know for me i'm always you know florida itself is in the midst of a huge population growth we're now mm-hmm. into we're now the third largest state per po- in population and sinking sinking into the oh, atlantic and the gulf <laughs> i know i'm, 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 I'm watching i'm actually so watching the title planes like yeah coming to my coming to my backyard as we speak you know the sheer cost of establishing a brand new university mm-hmm. is, I mean, I, I don't even know how how, we, how a state goes about goes about to build a university or anything like that. But oh, the the will in Florida, yeah, the will and the money is always there where the athletics are successful. Um, and I'll give you a really good example too, since we were talking about like the New Deal era. Um, this this book right behind me, this is Kingfish U. I haven't cracked it open. I just got it in the mail the other day, but it's a history of Huey Long at LSU. So Huey Long, when he was governor of Louisiana with his own presidential aspirations, um, is trying to out FDR, FDR. Um, and so he literally imports marble from Italy to build not just the stadium at LSU, but lots of campus buildings, also like um places around Baton Rouge that are not affiliated with the campus, right? So he's just spending cash like crazy in the depression. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the political will is there if you have a good sports team. That would be LSU, the reigning women's national basketball champions. That's correct? That's correct. What's the legacy of uh, of this film, of old school? What are, what, what are, your top, what are your top three <laughs> college movies? If you had to give me three, what are your top three favorites? Okay, the takeaway of old school to answer your first question yeah. is like this is such a clear to me in my conception. This is such a clear view into like the male psyche, the young male, the young straight white male psyche about what you guys want. So other important Thank college you for putting me in the young male psyche. <laughs> you're welcome. You're under sixty. Uh, Woo, barely. <laughs> Other top college movies, let's see. I I would have loved to pick apart Legally Blonde. That would have been so much fun, but I know somebody has already beat me to it. Animal House, we're going to watch again with a critical lens. And uh, another college movie. Those are really the two that comes, come to mind. What am I not thinking of? What, what else is there? Revenge of the Nerds. Mm, yeah. A movie you cannot. I mean, I can't show that on HATM. Now, because, <laughs> oh, my God, talk about a film that has not aged well 
<laughs> at all. Oh, there was so much in this that didn't age well. There was I have a long list of problematic things, but I was like, hit me with, okay, so hit okay. So oh my god, hit me with what doesn't age well from from old school. That's, a, that's probably a good question to ask. So much. Oh my gosh, all of the humor is rooted in like sex or violence, right? Someone's getting hurt. You're telling me Someone's that's a bad slapped thing. Slapped or humiliated. Yeah, these I don't think these are good things. Um, lots of just like irreverence right like lots of fat jokes they pick the fat character to do the gymnastics vault exercise and he's going to be spotted by the smallest guy on the team the brown kids nickname is spanish uh there's let's see what else oh the student council president right she's an asian girl her name is megan huang but no one can pronounce her last name not even the dean and he calls her chang Right. And then going back to the like aesthetics thing, she is, of course, in a Lacoste polo, which is like college preppy, like perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's there's lots of that. One thing that I notice just like a a theme of the humor is like there are serious moments, but you can only have them so long before like Will Ferrell comes in with something just ridiculous to like immediately change the vibe. Yes. So like. Right. Mitch and Nicole are having this serious conversation on the front porch about like how she's going through financial trouble. She's have to move in with her dad. And then all of a sudden Frank comes out and he's carrying this blow up doll. He's like, what should I put her in a cheerleader costume or a nurse? Like, you know, so you get those like extremities back, back to back. Um, Mitch says he was intimidated by Nicole in high school because she smoked and hung out with older guys. I don't know. Just like lots of, punching each other in the groin. These things aren't very problematic. I mean, maybe that's, well, actually a lot of that list is problematic, but like the punching each other in the groin, that's maybe just stupid slapstick humor. I don't know. You, you are better to analyze that than I, I, I have never done that to, 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 to another person. So like that, that, that level of humor has never seemed like fun to me at all. But like, you know, um, there's that, there's also the sleeping with your high schooler when you're 30. Mm-hmm. It's probably a, it's probably a problem. Oh, as well. Right? Yes. So. Okay. So in watching this, like, seriously, I watched this today is Monday. I watched this Thursday night. Um, and I had James with me. He was so excited. My husband was like, yes, I love this movie. Cause like, he's like, this is a bro pedal movie. to the metal. Yes. And he, he is giggling the entire time that we're watching this. And I'm like, what? This isn't funny. Um, so anyway, there's lots of just, and this is a Will Ferrell thing anyway, but lots of gay jokes. So like the opening scene, you see Mitch, he's at some, is he a real estate attorney? What kind of a lawyer he's is he? He's a real estate attorney. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's at this like yeah. convention. He hops in a cab because Uber's not a thing. He mm. hops in a cab. And then the very first thing that the cab driver says is like, you know, a, a slur. And then it's followed up by violence, right? The cab driver like slams on the gas and Mitch doesn't have a seatbelt on and he like bangs his head across. The yeah. So it was like that sort of stuff. That's just, and that's the opening scene. So that really sets the tone and lets audience members know, like, this is what you can expect. Lots of people getting hurt and it's going to be really funny. And we're going to be very irreverent and crude and obscene and derogatory about, you know, punching down. Yeah. And there's sweet moments in it too. So there's the scene at the birthday party where Will Ferrell somehow takes a an animal tranquilizer to the drug dealer and he's like passed out and he's dreaming about his wife and he's like it's very sweet right like he's like dreaming about making up with this conflict that's the whole theme of the movie and he comes to and he's kissing sean william scott who like immediately is like oh and like kicks him in the ribs and throws him in the pool right so there's that same sense of humor going from like serious moment to this is a joke 
And there's other other stuff that is funny. That's not problematic. Like he sings off key at Blue's funeral, but that's also classic Will Ferrell, right? To always be singing off key, to always be naked, running, screaming. <laughs> Does Will Ferrell singing in this movie make this a musical? No, sorry, Sarah. God damn it! All right, well, all right. Or sorry, Jason. So maybe you wanted it to be a musical. I don't know. This way, I can like like get my musicals. Like, yeah, it's clearly I like this movie. Therefore, I like musicals. See, everybody can leave me alone now. So, all right, let me ask you <laughs> our big question today. Then, is old school a history film? Uh, it yeah, I think it's not a history film, but it has very important um, as a time capsule. It itself could be a primary source, right? You could. This would be a great movie to discuss with your college students, um, all sorts of things. You could talk about uh, sex, gender, power dynamics. You could talk about the history of higher ed, as we kind of have a little bit today. Um, yeah, you could do a lot of this, a lot with this. Yeah, we, 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 we've had all of those different things today. And like, you know, sit down with our college, you know, and if we can get our students like, here, kids, let's let's watch old school in class. This movie's older than our students. It's now 20 years old. How is that possible? I don't know. Vince Vaughn looks super young in this movie. He does. He does. And how have we not brought this up yet? Snoop Dogg looks like a baby. Oh my gosh. He's so young. Like maybe I'm just used to seeing present day Snoop because I follow him on Instagram. Like I see him a lot and I don't keep up with Will Ferrell or Vince Vaughn or um, any of the other cast that much. But yeah, he looks so young. Yeah. it's, 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 It's amazing because they're kind of frozen in my mind. And then I look down like, this year's this movie's twenty years old. Mm-hmm. This movie is this movie is a college sophomore or junior at this point in time, which is bananas to me. I cannot imagine that. You were in college when this came out? Uh no, I'd already flunked out. I uh, see. I had <laughs> I I I graduated in ninety five, and I was all done with college for a while by by the by halfway through ninety eight or yeah by by ninety eight. So, um, so did yeah, this movie was, play a part in making you want to go back? No, uh, it didn't <laughs> actually. Um, I was um, selling mortgages and like I was miserable. I was part of actually, I was actually part of like another, uh, another film called The Big Short, where like a bunch of mortgage people who don't understand the economy destroy the American economy. I remember that. That one. was me. <laughs> oh my gosh, you played a part in the mortgage crisis. I have played a part in like many crises. Actually, wow. when I think about it, you know, just ask my just ask my exes. So that that that's my story. But yeah, no, um, I went back. In, I went back in just because like I wasn't happy. I thought I need to finish my college degree. Like it always bothered me that I'd never done it. And then got back got back in and wanted to uh, become a historian just in time for the history market to completely collapse and then be faced with a whole other set of crises as far as yeah. like uh, jobs and all that. But that's when I that's jumped in too. Story. Yeah. <laughs> Good time. We're doing fine. We're making a podcast. That's right. All right, Lauren LaSab Shepherd, where can we find you on Twitters and the other worlds? You can find me on all corners of the well, you can find me on many Some corners, corners of the corners. internet. Uh at at L Lasab. So that's L L A S S A B E. Um most active on Instagram of all places, but uh kind of active on, on Twitter. Um, some days I'm very active other days. I forget about it for like a couple of weeks. Um, and then you can also find me on Facebook, Warren Lasab Shepherd. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to, to next round. And that's a wrap here at Historians of Movies podcast. Thank you so much to our guest, Lauren Lasab Shepherd. 
for stopping in today and talking to us about old school. Lauren, you were amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Cannot wait to have you back on the pod. Thank you, of course, to our producer, Fletcher Powell. You can find him on Twitter at Fletcher underscore Powell. You'll have to figure out how to spell those names for yourself. And, of course, thank you to our listeners. I guess that's you. So thank you to you. If you want to learn more about Historians of the Movies, you can find me at, at Herbert History on Twitter. You can look for hashtag HATM online. And keep your eyes open for a new and revamped website coming up soon, historiesofthemovies.com. Thank you for, to those of you who have pledged already to support this podcast. Or if you want to reach out about sponsoring the pod, please do so. You can drop me a line at historiansofthemovies at gmail.com. Guys, thank you so much for being part of this community. Can't wait to have you back again. Maybe you'll be feeling a little bit better when you're back. And um, ciao for now. Talk to you later. School's out. See what I did there? Bye.